Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to the Near and Queer to My Heart podcast. I'm your host, Amanda G., Thanks so much, as always, for tuning in. And thank you so much for supporting us. In the last couple weeks, we've been getting some amazing ratings and reviews on iTunes. And we thank you so much for taking the time out to do that. It really lets us know that you are listening and that you care and support us. And we we love you from the bottoms of our hearts. Thank you. A special shout out. Last episode, we announced that we are now part of a podcast network. So once again, shouts to That's Not Canon Productions. It has been so helpful to have a network behind us and to know that they believe in us and that they're supporting us. And especially for me, I'm bad at technology. We all know this. It has been a great help to have folks who know what they're doing help me out with that. So thank you all so much. I'm excited for this episode. This one was a long time coming. Joan Cox is our guest, and we talk about it in the episode, uh, but we were destined to have this happen. We had so many different connections, so many different ways that the universe was telling us, hey, y'all need to talk. Joan has a story to tell. Y'all are the right ones to do this. So I'm really excited. Joan is an artist. She's been featured in The Advocate. She has been featured in galleries in New Orleans. She had her own gallery in New Orleans at one point. She's amazing. We're so excited to have her. So without any further ado, please welcome Joan Cox. So Joan Cox, I, I'm so happy that we're finally able to talk. I, I did want to start off by uh, when I tell people like everyone in the queer community is connected, they have that six degrees to Kevin Bacon. I believe we have six degrees to Alita Glass. Everybody is connected to her. And Joan and I were connected. I had gone to Clexicon convention in Las Vegas last year to help promote the podcast and just meet other queer artists and folks out there. And there, at the table next to mine was a woman named Jen Grace, who has her own publishing company, Publish Your Purpose. And since we were just tabling together, we just chatted for like a couple of days. Uh, my girlfriend, Jen, and myself, uh, we were all a little older than most of the folks at Clexicon who were in their teens and early 20s. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we were, it was nice to have someone to relate to. And then Jen started this uh, Facebook group for LGBTQ entrepreneurs and business owners. And Joan was part of that group. And I think I had posted something about being in New Orleans. And Joan, I believe you used to live in New Orleans. And I know you were back there recently. And so you messaged. The first thing you said was, hey, do you know Alita Glass? (laughs) Right. Out of all of the people I know in New Orleans. And I was like, yes. Yeah, she's one of my closest friends. Like she is literally one of my closest friends. So I was just like, of course, you know, Alita, that's that's the person but that's the person you went to, like you said, out of all people you knew in New Orleans, you picked Alita because you knew she was that Kevin Bacon of whatever the six degrees of queerness is. (laughs) She absolutely is. But it was cool that we had this, you know, we're one degree away from each other. And then, you know, we started talking since you've, you know, lived in New Orleans, and you came down recently for the crew of Joan of Arc and you had an exhibit at the CAC, the Contemporary Art Center. Oh, I wish it was at the CAC. No, I have to correct you. It wasn't at the CAC. It was near the CAC, two degrees of separation at the um, Ariadante Gallery. It's a lesbian-owned gallery, actually, as well, but it's not the Contemporary Art Center. That would be cool. A gallery in New Orleans in the CBD, Central Business District, is also pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Right. Oh, yeah. No, it's great and fun and awesome. And um, yeah, when we we used to live in New Orleans because we had a gallery, our own gallery in New Orleans some some years back, just a few, like 15. I know exactly because Hurricane Katrina came and kind of washed away some of my dreams. 
in 2005. Yeah. Oh, not to bring a bummer, though, to the conversation, <laughs> please. Oh, no, not at all. We're going to, this is a always going to be a roller coaster, but I want to start a little further back. Well, I guess before we get into into your timeline and your life, I know, I know you're an artist. And, um, what, what type of art do you do? What do you paint with? Do you do other things besides that? Absolutely. You know, it's tough to be an artist of any sort and make a living. So yeah, I've been a graphic designer for 25 years or uh, maybe even longer. I don't know. Yeah, I work for myself at this point uh, and just, you know, creating logos and lots of visual things, which is very creative and stimulating. But I'm a painter, primarily oil painting, oil on canvas. Occasionally I work in some other medias as well. I, I work with watercolor on clear mylar and then transfer it to paper. So it looks like a regular watercolor on paper, but it's called a monoprint. But my subject matter is uh, women, women couples, openly lesbian couples. And in the smaller works that I do on paper, I might have figures kind of holding hands on a beach or a scene, something like that, or maybe an intimate kind of cropped two faces together or something that shows more of a universal feeling of two women together. And then the larger oil paintings are typically more portrait and narrative focused where I'm getting into intimate spaces where a couple might live. So I might pose a couple on their sofa or just do a whole day of photographing of a couple in and around their home or their house. I like to capture the true visual elements that are part of their daily lives and weave it into the painting so that I'm really showing what a lesbian couple is like or is about because I'm not seeing that kind of art out in in galleries and museums and higher institutions of art. I mean, you can click on Instagram and type in lesbian art and you can see lots of like cartoony things, things that are usually a lot more sexually explicit. That's not what I'm going for. I'm going for, you know, imagery and painting that really reveals personality, identity, and relationship between women. And I, and I think that's great. I think the, the more that that, art, that type of art is accessible to people who don't identify as lesbian or queer is helpful to just help us move past these stereotypes of, you know, if I'm holding hands with my girlfriend and walking down the street, I can't do that in the same way that a straight couple can. Right. And depending on what city you're in. Yeah. I mean, generally speaking, most cities, um, yeah, there are some places like San Francisco or, you know, places that are a little more queer friendly or certain pockets of, of cities where you're able to do that. But generally speaking, I can't, I have to be aware of where I am before I make a decision to do that. Mm -hmm. um, and I always am like, I wish one day I could just, when I feel like it, hold my girlfriend's hand, not think about who's around me, where I am, where we're going, you know, anything like that. And I, I think the more art and other mediums that are out there that are just doing what you're doing would, would really, you know, do help in that and making that happen. That's exactly where I'm going. And I wish I'd have started 20 years ago because I've been painting that long. And I had actually painted a lot of interracial couples, but straight couples. I had a set of friends who willingly modeled for me back in those days in the 90s. But I wasn't even fully out myself, and I wasn't ready to embrace painting and depicting women together and then putting it out there and going, this is my art, yay. So I've come a long way, you know, both personally and I think socially, societally, and my family. Like, the whole world is gradually, slowly, but gradually changing. And and now I feel like, well, if no one else is doing it, if I can't find it on the internet, or if I can only find, you know, some woman artist in Paris in the 20s who painted a few portraits of herself and her posse, or, you know, here and there, if I can't find it, then certainly young women or young queer identifying people are not finding and seeing this type of art in their lives. So I'm going to create it. You know, I'm sure not, I'm sure I'm not the only one, you know, there's probably lots of us doing it, but it's just not getting out there yet. So Things like even this podcast can help get it out there to where a higher institution might eventually collect the piece and put it in a spot where, you know, a 12-year-old is going to walk through on a school field trip and go, oh, I didn't know. Wait a minute. What is this scene? That's not a man and a woman. Like, what is this? Is this okay? That would be great. Yeah, no, definitely. And, and I talk with a lot of folks about just like, rep, like queer representation in uh, film and television and and art and, you know, any sort of media forms that a lot of us didn't have that growing up or had it in like a very limited stereotypical way. Mm -hmm. So, you know, like I said, the more it's out there, I, I feel like the, the generation that's below me and even below that, they've had depictions of, of queerness, of different types of gender identity, and they at least know it exists. A lot of us, and I know when I was young, like, 
under, I kind of understood that gay men existed. I didn't really understand that lesbians existed. I didn't understand any other type of queerness existed because I didn't see that. Absolutely. I was in the same boat um, being a little bit older than you, probably almost 15 years older than you. I hate to say the numbers. Yeah, I didn't ask. I did not. I, uh, no, I turned. No, I'll tell you, I turned fifty last year, and I'm so I'm still fifty five zero. You know, so I grew up mostly, you know, in the mid '80s, and there were some gay characters here or there, and certainly since then, we've had a lot more on television and movies. But they're they're just it's it's very limited in the fine art world, where you're going to go look at masterpieces or narrative paintings, or even a lot of other contemporary narrative paintings. Some of my biggest influences are African-American artists who are doing just amazing, beautiful work to bring the same concept of their, their Blackness and Black culture to a more socially equal status by uh, Kehinde Wiley is one of them and Carrie James Marshall and Barkley Hendricks and Micheline Thomas. I'll just throw a lot of names at you or for anybody who's listening who's interested in identity and art. And these artists are just doing beautiful figurative works that insert African-American culture into standard life, regular life, everyday life. Like, why aren't they represented in the same way that other art, you know, European classic art of the ages is represented? So they're doing that. I look to them. They're doing amazing, beautiful work. And it inspires me to do the same for my personal little piece of queer community. I don't even feel comfortable necessarily painting gay men, let's say, although I paint a few here and there because I just want to 100% identify with who I am and put all of that onto the canvas. That's the main reason that I focus only on lesbian couples because that's, you know, who I am and what I've embraced. Yeah, absolutely. I want to back it up and kind of talk about where where you're from originally. I hail right here from Baltimore, Maryland, believe it or not. And I spent a lot of years here and moved to New Orleans in 2005 to sort of get out of my hometown. I had a, a new girlfriend at the time, new-ish, and we were just like totally committed. You know how that kind is right off the bat where you just know, like, this is finally the one. And we were like, let's go out in the world. Let's make something happen. Let's let's do something fabulous, amazing. And I, you know, been doing graphic design for years and painting on the side. And I had a painting studio and we went on a trip to New Orleans, which was like our third trip, maybe. We saw a space for sale or for rent that was next to a few other art galleries right on Magazine Street. And I don't know. I just looked at her and said, oh my gosh, I would just love to have this. It looked like a studio. It needed to be a studio. I would just love to quit my day job and finally make it happen and be a painter and move to New Orleans and open an art gallery. And that's what we did. And it was all awesome and exciting. And then Hurricane Katrina came six weeks after we opened. Oh no, six weeks? Yeah, six weeks. We Uh. literally had a soft opening on July 15th to, you know, get warmed up to the business, even though there's nobody in town in the summer and we were getting all set for the fall art season and art for art's sake and kind of spent all of our money getting the gallery fixed up and nice. And we were showing my own artwork and then a few other artists that I brought with me from Baltimore who were my studio mates. And and then I was exploring and researching in, in New Orleans to add. So we were representing maybe about a dozen people at the most and selling art in that really early collector phase between, you know, $300 and $3,000. And we were situated between two galleries that really complemented that, you know, that the gallery right next door was more of your ten dollars to $20,000 gallery. And the one across the street was, you know, maybe also starting at three hundred, dollars but going up to the 20000 And it was the dream to make that all happen. And hurricane came and went and, you know, life changed dramatically. And we reopened the gallery and people used to walk in and go, whoa, where did you come from? And why in the world did you open a gallery in New Orleans brand new after a hurricane? Well, we were, you know, like we didn't. We just secretly opened in the summer. <laughs> we were here six weeks before. Yeah, so we stuck around for two years. And Alita, that's when I met Alita Glass, and she was awesome. And we used to have our own little personal lesbian night, uh, Reginelli's Apple Magazine, to have pizza with a couple of girls, just like every Monday night, I think we used to do it. And Alita was one of those girls that kept our community together and us together and learning about the city from right from the beginning, almost, you know, we just moved into this community. And then boom, we were sharing this universal experience, which is kind of like now where the pandemic is universally affecting everyone's lives. Uh, I think before I had ever experienced a natural emergency or a situation like that, you can't understand it or explain it. And then I lived through Katrina and I could, you know, explain it and feel it and be empathetic towards 
people in other communities then experiencing that. But I think for the first time, this pandemic is touching everyone and everyone will have that. Anyway, I'm, I'm going way down a path. You probably have other questions, but we spent two years there, tried to make it work. It just couldn't work. You know, then the financial crisis of 07, 08 kind of came in and we left town and we went to Alexandria, Virginia, where I got back a graphic design job. Um, we stayed there for five or six years, eventually moved back here to Baltimore. And in between, I went off and got my master's of fine arts up in Provincetown, one of the other big gay towns, and had a lot of fun up there doing a residency for two years. I love how you're like, in between these times, I just went and just dabbled my toes in a in a master's real quick. <laughs> well, it was a low residency, <laughs> so I, I kept my day job, and I just left for a month each fall and spring. And then did online courses and home studio visits while I worked my day job. But yeah, I did sort of dabble and finish my MFA. And so are are you still with this girlfriend? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. We got married uh, in 2014 when it finally became legal in Maryland. Yeah, my wife. Now, I'm not a big fan of that term, wife. I know partner sounds like a law partner or something. So Yeah, do you, do you have a term that you're a fan of? Spouse, better half, you know, just her name, Mare. Mayor McCall is her name. We've been together. Um, it'll be 19 years in December. Wow. Yeah, she's fantastic and amazing. And we got married. We decided to get married when it became legal in Maryland. We we're like, okay, we finally have to do this thing. And we did it in our backyard, New Orleans style. We hired a brass band and a food truck. And the food truck was at the end of the driveway. And we had all the long white tents down the driveway. And we asked our the food truck driver slash chef, who's a gay guy, um, who also is a quote, justice of the peace, we asked him to marry us and then serve us the food. And we requested a sort of New Orleans style look to his dress. And he showed up in a seersucker shorts and seersucker jacket and patent leather shoes and like a little straw hat and a bow tie. I mean, it was perfect. Perfect. Yes. Seersucker. New Orleans is the only place you really get away with that. Right. And seersucker shorts, not even the full pants. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> Because that's New Orleans. It's too hot for a full suit, even a seersucker. Totally. But, you know, we were here in Baltimore, but that's the way we did it. And we had, um, since we did it in our yard, we were dressing up the yard, of course, for months, making sure that plants look great and trees and this and that. Well, that winter, one of our trees died. And so instead of digging it up and ripping it out, we spray painted it blue and threw beads all over it. And it was, (laughs) (laughs) it was like the image of our, of our wedding. You know, we put it on the thank you card, you know, our beaded tree. The people up here are like, what is this? Who are you? Where, what kind of wedding <laughs> is this? Well, it's a queer wedding. Oh, and the last thing before I forget is for our table decorations. We were inspired by the crew of muses and the fact that we had caught a muse shoe here or there. And we spent months decorating, hand decorating and glittering shoes and put them all on the tabletops for our table decoration and let people take them home. Did people understand that or were they just like, what, why is there one shoe? Right. Why is there this one beaded shoe? Yeah. Um, some people did because we had brought, some of our family had visited when we lived in New Orleans and actually made it to the Mardi Gras parades. And so they got it. And I kind of have some artsy people in my family and they got it, but others were totally confused. They just thought it was an outrageous wedding overall. So y'all are living the the lesbian U-Haul dream, which is where you meet, you automatically are like, this is it. And then about 20 years later, you're still going. Absolutely. And now raising a kiddo. So besides the fact that marriage became legal, and this is a question that I always ask, because for me, I think marriage is such a big deal. I think it's a bigger deal than a lot of people I know who are now on their second or third ones make of it. But I also, for me, I, I guess I always get concerned with like the government. And I'm not even like a government conspiracy person, but I'm just like, why do they have to be involved in my personal life? So I guess the question is, even before it was legal, were you talking about getting married? And what was what was the decision to get married? It sounds like y'all were, you know, committed, were living your lives together, or acting as one. Uh, but what is that? What is that decision for you to to take it to that uh, next level um, and get married? Oh, that's a, such a good question. I'm sure everybody should be asked every couple because it's a tough one. Mayor definitely wanted to get married earlier on, and we talked about it, and you know, just talked about it. And I was always kind of the downer and the bummer. I was like, I just don't want to. It's not that I'm not committed, but that was too normal for me. And the way I grew up in my mind, I just, you know, I was so anti-normal. I used to joke that you could just call me NN, not normal. 
because I knew I wasn't normal, but I didn't exactly know what I was and where and how and how I fit into the world. But even as I figured that all out and finally came out and was openly lesbian, I just, I didn't want to go down that path of, oh, husband, wife, or straight family or family with kids. And I don't know, just all of those things just turned me off in so many ways. And I had negative feelings about them. My parents were divorced and just had negative thoughts and feelings about the whole marriage thing. So it took a lot of time for me to get used to it. And of course, I was watching, you know, our community fight, fight for the right and fight for the right and fight for the right. And over time, you know, I changed my thinking on it or just my feelings about it, marriage. And again, that term of wife to me has always stood out to be rather misogynist and has so many negative connotations like the little woman and the ball and chain. And I can't think of any negative uh, slang words for husband. Husband, like all these women in the 50s, like my mother, they put the concept of husband like, oh, I'm going to dress up. I want to catch a husband. You know, it's always been for women in our in, in our American culture, like, oh, you got to go get a man, get a husband. But for men, uh, I don't know. It was different. And I just didn't want to, quote, be a wife. You know, it just didn't seem like a positive thing. So um, all these years later, and, um, you know, I think it is important, as Mayor said to me when it happened, like, it's important that we get, we step up and be counted. Um, not to mention, of course, owning houses and cars and, you know, things like that together and Social Security and something happens to one of us who gets the house. Like, okay, marriage solves some of those things, right? But being counted, like we matter, our relationship counts. This is not just 19 years of roommate-ness. We both felt really strongly that that was great. And it was time to celebrate in front of our families. I mean, they had both, you know, welcomed us and been a part of our lives. And we're, we're always both in each other's families' lives. And it was time. I think they really enjoyed it and appreciated being able to attend it. Probably the one and only gay wedding they're they were ever going to go to. They got to talk about that. They're probably still getting mileage off of it. <laughs> Maybe. I feel like when I ask that question on this podcast, everyone gives a very thoughtful answer. Like anyone who's married, they had the discussion about it. There maybe was some hesitancy. There was some real thought, you know, and it wasn't like, well, this is just the next step. You know, I have like, I have a straight friend who I asked her one time, you will ask, probably ask you this too, because uh, you do have a child. I said, well, why did, why did you decide to have kids at, uh, at this point? And she said, well, it's just the next thing to do. Hmm. And I was just like, to me, I'm like, you're bringing a human being into this world. And especially now with the pandemic and, and COVID and parents that really didn't think about what potentially, you know, they decided this is what their life was going to be. And COVID has decided otherwise. They're home all the time, but they're also now you're more responsible for their schooling than a lot of parents ever anticipated. I think it's great that, you know, you and Mare had that conversation. And over, it sounds like over a period of time and really thought it through. Many times. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, I, I feel badly that I'm sure I disappointed her several times when I would say, no, I just I just don't feel comfortable. I don't think my dad would show up. You know, I feel like it was always me saying no. And I didn't want to squelch her enthusiasm or love or commitment. But I think she had different views of it for her own reasons. You know, and you'd probably have to ask her how and why and what she felt about it um, to to really know, but it's, it's a tough position to be in when you're LGBT, like your upbringing, your experiences, your social norms, everything in your head, um, kind of dictates how you feel about that topic. Yeah. But it's great too, that you were like, Hey, I don't feel completely comfortable with this in this moment. And here's why versus saying like, Oh, she wants to get married. I want to be with her. We should just get married. Right. You know, y'all did it when you were both ready. And when you both came to that place where you're like, this is the next step for us. Right. Absolutely. And now the child thing is a whole different thing. We did talk about that in, in very similar ways. She wanted children earlier or wanted to have a family. And again, I was like, I don't know. And I don't really want to ever get pregnant. It's just not my thing. So we talked about that for a few years, and after our experience in New Orleans and our lives changed, and we moved back to Alexandria, Virginia, and we're like, kind of like, what's next? We thought, well, maybe you know, I don't know, maybe this is the time. Then we tried one thing. We tried like a big, risky, youthful thing. Moved to another state, opened a business. Oh, that crashed in a major hurricane. Uh, let's just maybe settle down and be a little stable and normal and start a family. So we tried, you know, we, we both tried to get pregnant essentially, you know, with the doctor help, we didn't go in the extreme measures, but we just, we went to the, you know, cryo bank or whatever it's called. I don't even remember anymore. Uh, the sperm bank and 
we did that part and we each tried twice and it didn't work. And so we were like, well, I guess it's just not meant to be. It's not in the cards. It's not going to happen. And a few years went by and we moved back to Baltimore uh, for a couple of different reasons. Like it's cheaper to live here. You can get a better house. Our family's here. My family is here. And we had some nephews and whatnot. And our dog, our beloved dog who lived with us in New Orleans and all over all the places, um, she passed away in January of 2014. And we were just sort of so heartbroken and lost without her that we decided to take a road trip to where? New Orleans. <laughs> of course. <laughs> to Alita Glass's house. She had just moved into a new house and she's like, I've got this pad. It doesn't have any furniture yet, but why don't you guys come and stay? And we did. We camped out on her guest room floor on an air mattress for the week of Mardi Gras in 2014, hitting the parades and seeing our old friends. And I got a call from my mother that essentially my older brother was going to go into rehab. He was going into rehab and he's like going to drop off his less than three month old infant baby girl to us uh, while he and his wife both were going to go off to rehab and get themselves right. So Long story short, we just sort of inherited a Mardi Gras baby. You know how they come out of the king cake? <laughs> she just hopped out of the king cake at like 15 pounds and slightly less than three months old. And um, six and a half years later, we are, you know, co-raising her, I would say. You know, her parents are uh, much more involved now than they were in the first couple of years. And um, she's just been, you know, a joy and amazing surprise. Uh, you know, we wanted to have a family, but we didn't, but we did, but we didn't really know how to make it work, or we didn't know how much effort we should put into forcing it. We weren't one of those couples that was like, no matter what, you know, we're going to spend 20000 and make sure, you know, we get a baby somehow. No, we just left it up to the stars, and fortunately, it kind of happened, and it worked for us. So yeah, we've been parents now for almost seven years, and started at Mardi Gras 2014, and she took her first steps on Mardi Gras Day. Like the first steps, not holding on to the coffee table on Mardi Gras Day um, following year. Yeah, the following year, she was like 14 months old. Perfect. You'll, you'll always remember that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's a good marker always. for things when you're like, Mardi Gras Day, this thing happened. You're like, I, I'll remember this forever. Yeah. I always ask these like very convoluted questions, but there's a couple of things that I, I do want to ask about because specifically in the beginning, you, you were talking about your art and how, you know, once you came out, your art changed. So I kind of wanted to talk about your coming out experience in your personal life and then how it how it manifested itself in your art. And generally, the, the way I like to ask this question is, uh, I don't like to just say, tell me your coming out story. But I, I think there's, you know, multiple layers to, to coming out, kind of like an onion, you just peel back one and there's another. So I always feel like there's this, uh, when did you come out to yourself? Uh, and then when did you start coming out to other people? Um, and then when did you start coming out in a public space? Oh, these are good. I know we have to come out like every day, don't we? Depending if you're in a work situation or a certain kind of phone call or a certain kind of new place and someone hints or assumes that you're straight in whatever way, like, oh, did you and your husband travel there? Or, I, you know, I don't know. People just say things without even thinking. And Yeah, I have clients sometimes that are, they, you know, they're trying to be inappropriate. <laughs> Instead of being clients, they're trying to hit on you. But they're, do you have a boyfriend? Do you have a husband? Mm -hmm. And I'll say no. And I say, well, why not? Why doesn't a, a woman like you, you know, and it's like, I, do I come out at this point or do I just avoid the topic? Right. It depends where I am. I'm very rarely shy about it anymore. I used to be terribly shy or withhold or not, you know, be willing to even open up or feel like I was safe. But generally now, unless I truly feel like I'm unsafe or it's just not worth it, then I'd rather even just shock people and just, yeah, I mean, come on. You know, if some guy whistles at me on the corner and tries to start a conversation or any kind of, you know what I mean, just uh, that's just uh, an idea. But if something happens like that, I'll just be like, dude, barking up the wrong tree. I'm married to a wife. You know, I paint women, go somewhere else. I don't hold back anymore. Yeah, like I said, as I get older, I'm noticing that I'm just like, yeah, my girlfriend wouldn't appreciate that. And, I, and I'm okay with saying that versus like the fear of that becoming a thing. Mm-hmm. So that's why, you know, I do think that there are these layers to that. And, you know, and I think, you know, you have an additional layer with 
it sounds like your art shifted as you became more yourself and more comfortable with who you were. So, you know, I wanted to ask about that bubble, that huge question of the the coming out experience. (laughs) I mean, these are like a lot of layered onion questions. Is this a therapy session? (laughs) Um, (laughs) And how does that make you feel? (laughs) (laughs) Luckily, like I said, I'm a lot more comfortable now at 50, even talking about these things than I ever would have been even 20 years ago or 10 years ago. But um, when I was like six and seven years old, I was already crushing on my best friend, you know, this little girl down the block and her family moved away and we would go visit sometimes, you know, it would be months in between visits. We'd go visit and the moms would say hi and sit in the kitchen and we'd run off in her room to play and we'd shut the door. And I just remember this one time we just stood there both face to face and we just went like and gave each other a little kiss. Like that was the first time that ever happened. And she might not even remember it. She might, in you know, I, she might not even remember me, but I remember that moment like, oh my gosh, I just, we just kissed. I just, this girl just kissed me like at seven. And then, I, you know, I didn't really think about it and I didn't get to see her much more anymore. And I didn't try to sort of have friends like that, but I just would crush on my teachers and bring them flowers every spring. I would just cut every daffodil in the garden and bring it to my favorite teacher at school and kind of went on like that for a long time. And I don't don't think I really realized because as you said, I knew about gay men and, you know, I'd hear slurs about gay men, but I didn't even know that women could be gay or lesbian or whatever you want to call it. Maybe in my teens, I finally heard, my early teens finally heard that word lesbian. And it's such an ugly word, or at least it was to me. I've kind of gotten used to it now, but it's still not my favorite word. And maybe because of the way I heard it used back then. But I didn't really come out to myself. Even So even in my early teen years, I went to an all-Catholic girls' school where, you know, I was trying to find my way and find friends. And I was kind of one of those painfully shy bookworm, smarty pants types um, (laughs) that I didn't make friends so easily. But I started to make a few friends and, you know, eventually sort of had this best friend. And then we were hanging out each other's house all the time and starting to do that, you know, sleepover girlfriend thing that friends do. And I don't know, one time I just sort of like grabbed her hand and held it. And, you know, that was it for me. But I still didn't admit to myself, didn't admit to each other that we were gay. We just thought we were strange or we just liked each other a lot. And that one day we'd get married to men. And even though we just had that whole conversation about marriage (laughs) that, you know, we just thought like we just told each other, oh, yeah, one day, you know, like when we go to college or something, we'll we'll meet some guy or something and this will all break up. So we lived a closeted high school and college relationship for an embarrassingly long time. I mean, now I look back and I just wish I had the guts to come out and be who I was or that I had any kind of role models in life. But we were totally closeted for a long time and had an apartment with two separate bedrooms and the whole nine yards. Oh, wow. So it wasn't a pretty... I don't know if coming out is ever a pretty story, but eventually it was, we finished college, both of us graduated in 1991, <laughs> <laughs> in 91. And, you know, real life was sort of starting. And I had a lot of gay guy friends in the art scene. One of my art teachers was an openly gay Spanish guy who was photographing beautiful men and he was amazing. And he'd take me to the gay bars, which I'd never been into before. And I would just sort of hang out and enjoy looking at all these cute guys, but not really associate at all with women. And I really had no interest in even getting to know them. But I knew in my heart that I was secretly one of them. But I just wanted to hang out with him and just sort of be a fly on the wall and soak it all up, but not really admit to myself what was truly going on. So it took like another year of, you know, seeing Katie Lang on the cover of Variety magazine or something. And chic, you know, lesbian chic was being touted on on the newsstands. And between seeing that and hanging out with him, um, I just kind of kept egging her on. Like, come on, we got to We got to like admit this to ourselves and come out. And she wasn't ready to do it. And I was just like bursting at the seams and I had to do it. And he introduced us to some gay girlfriends of his who were a couple and you know this is where the part goes the story goes bad you know we met them and started hanging out with them and then we became close friends and then all four of us were close friends and then suddenly of course I was like much more interested in one of these girls in this couple and she was interested in me and 
I did that whole, you know, hopefully only once in a lifetime cheating situation where the two of us kind of connected and I didn't know how to deal with it because I never really dated. I didn't, you know, I didn't know how to break up a secret closeted relationship to date a, another girl who was in a relationship. Yeah, I just didn't have any tools in my tool bag for that and wasn't really honest with myself about any of it. So not the best story, but basically we broke up each other's relationships and eventually came out of the closet <laughs> in a big cheating turmoil. And then, yeah, I never looked back into that closet. I'm sure you have some questions. I'm going to leave it right there. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for sharing. I, a lot of times it's hard to, to take a look in the mirror and see all the pieces. I, yeah, this is definitely like a therapy session. Yeah, so I won't, I won't get too, uh, too much into the therapy side of it. What happened with y'all? Uh, when you got together and then did either of you talk to the other partners? Right. Okay. So yeah, we got together and we stayed together for five years and um, my previous girlfriend, closeted girlfriend was like, I don't want anything to do with you. You've ruined my life, you know, and I really haven't spoken to her other than bumping here or there in 20 some years. But the person I was with then for five years, she kind of kept in touch with her ex for a while. They owned a house together. And then that ex actually, she went, she changed her mind, went straight and had a baby a couple years later. I don't know that they talk anymore, um, but they did initially talk some. I don't know. It was, it was not pretty. It was really not pretty. I don't recommend it <laughs> for anybody listening and considering or anybody who finds themselves in this same spot. I don't recommend it. I know there's a lot of pieces to it, but um, I just, you know, I guess for me, and we can all look back, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. Mm. I'm just like, well, just break up with the person first, and then you can right. be with whoever you want. Right. Well, that's what I did the next time something happened. Um, I was just sort of dating off and on. So I was with her for five years, and that ended because, oh, she left me for a married woman, and I mean a straight married woman who was leaving her husband, so she cheated on me again, so... Once a cheater, twice a cheater, usually often a cheater. I don't know. I've never cheated again, you know, on my partner. So yay, like I'm keeping it <laughs> one time useful mistake. Anyway, I was dating, not really finding the right person, but I was dating somebody when I met Mare. She came along, started working at a company that I worked at, and we were taking her out, showing her gay Baltimore, my gay roommate and I, James. We took her out and because she was from Pennsylvania, she moved down here for the job and we all met and we were like instant friends. And, you know, one thing led to another and she and I, we, yeah, the, you know, the energy, the vibes were there. The, the moves were going to come out any minute. And I was like, wait, I got to break up with this girl I've been dating. Like, you know, literally tonight, like, hang on, hold that thought. And I just, yeah, I hope she's not listening, but yeah, I just had to go like, all right, look, this is over. Sorry to leave you in a rush. It's over. I don't even need to talk about it or discuss. There's someone else on the horizon and we were never a good match. And yeah, I didn't want to have any crossovers anymore. <laughs> no, no, you know, none of that behind the scenes feeling guilty stuff. We all made a lot of mistakes when, when we were young. My, my first girlfriend was more or less in the closet. She was out to like a few friends pretty much, but we lived together and her family who lived 20 minutes away didn't know I existed. Right. They didn't even know you were like a school friend or a friend or a... No, she didn't even tell them like I ex I was a person wow. in her life. Wow. Yeah, there there was one day uh, her mom called, it was like a Sunday morning. Her mom was like, hey, uh, I'm on my way over. And she literally kicked me out of my own house. Oh, wow. Wow. Yeah. I mean, but that's the stuff that happens when you're so in the closet for, you know, you're scared of your family. Yeah. Religious reasons and otherwise, like totally scared of your family. And even today, I'm sure there are people out there or somebody who might listen to this who might be like, yes, that's me still. Even though the world is so gay right now, or it feels like it is, if you're in the right places and surrounded by the right people, it's so very accepting now. Um, but there's still people and families who are not going to feel safe and would yeah very easily kick out somebody they love and kick them out on the street you know out the back door so that their mom can come in the front door yeah and so that you know I think that just you know eventually her not being out to her to her family to like her co-workers to I was out and it was killing me yeah it's painful to have that so there was no way that relationship was was gonna go anywhere was gonna be successful um as long as this was going mm -hmm. on so you know i understand that that piece of like it, it always hanging hanging over yeah yeah it's not comfortable and it but and it does play a big role in our 
you know, in our queer lives and our backstories and how long it takes us to get to that next, you know, part of our lives, whether it's, you know, a career or family or whatever it is. I mean, it's a kind of a big hurdle. And so you asked about the, all of that coming out and with my artwork as well, it affected it as well. So when I was in college and totally closeted, I was very much a figurative painter. I was always painting bodies, but I chose because I had this gay teacher, I chose to very often paint and draw male bodies. I mean, you know, A, we had a lot of male uh, models, you know, like nude models in college on the campus and all. But it seemed like, oh, well, if I just, you know, paint a bunch of guys and male models, then nobody's really going to question, you know, and probe me. Like, why are you painting naked women all the time? So I didn't paint them and I, I painted figures. And then once I came out and I came a little bit more to this realization, like, okay, this is real. This is who I am. It's not going to change. I actually stopped painting figures and I started painting pears. And then eventually some other fruits some pomegranates and plums. But the reason for the pears was twofold. I wanted to paint curves and luscious colors and um, paint about relationships. And the pears were sort of stand-ins for figures. I could put two together. I could put, you know, a whole cluster only of pears. I would just go to the market and buy pears and put them on the floor next to my easel and paint them. It was also, I had done a lot of watercolor in college and all my figures were watercolor. It's a completely different way than painting in oil. And oddly enough, in college, I only painted oil, like for my requisite, like one or two classes. It was just, it's just a difficult medium to master. And so out of college, now I could just do whatever I felt like doing. I thought, I got to master this because I'm, I was totally bored with the watercolor and the figures and I wanted to switch it up. So I just thought this is an easy subject. It's technically still life, but I'm painting them huge, you know, like basically life-size pairs, like three, four foot tall paintings with just one or two pairs, you know, or maybe there's a stripe or a line and a lot of drips. And so I tried to put emotions and colors and curves and context and lusciousness, but just put it all into these pairs as women rather than actually painting women. And then when I moved to New Orleans, I incorporated a lot of the lush tropical foliage. I just love sort of the dripping ginger flowers and the banana leaves. And then that's kind of that pod that hangs down from the banana plants and the tropical beauty of the city was really what I was trying to capture. I think for a lot of those same reasons, I was imbuing all of the paintings with, I don't know how to say it, kind of an emotional attachment to more feminine or curvy, womenly attributes. So it wasn't until I went to grad school years later and I was painting some portraits and some gay guys occasionally and some other portraiture. I was kind of getting back into the figure, but now in oil painting and that was in grad school that I was like, all right, this is it. Come on. It's time to get real and hardcore and really look inside and figure out what it is you want to paint and why. Because I mean, I could paint beaches or flowers or sunsets, but that's not who I want to be as an artist. I want to, I want to connect with people beyond the, you know, the commonly like a pop song. You know, you can write a pop song or you can write some kind of deeply moving opera. Or and I want to be somewhere in the middle there, somewhere where I can touch people and make a difference in, in the world and in somebody's life by seeing something that that I've made or created. That's where I started painting, you know, my partner and I, and some portraits of us, double portraits, and only focusing now on double portraits of actual women couples rather than just grabbing any models off the street or just models who are just friends. I only like to paint real couples so that I can capture that realness that's between them. That's an amazing, amazing journey. And I'm glad that, you know, it sounds like you figured out your artistic purpose. Yeah, I just wish it didn't take me so long. But but here I am, and life's not over. <laughs> that's okay that it's because it's you got there, you know, and and that's it, it. Might take a little longer, but it might have looked different if this had happened, you know, in your twenties. I knew in my twenties. The reason I didn't go to grad school right after undergrad is because I knew I didn't know what I had to paint about. I knew that I was confused and too. My life was just too vanilla. I just didn't have anything to say or share or important, and I didn't want to put a bunch of time and money into an MFA where an MFA is like, okay, really dig deep and, and make your mark on the world with your art. And I realized I was um, too young, green or something. I hadn't lived yet. And that was part of my hopping off and moving to New Orleans too. And 
God knows, you know, experiencing what I did there and how life went, I, I did. I just did end up having certainly something to say or share in my art by the time I get to grad school in my 40s. Yeah, I mean, I always say it is never too late. I, I, I strongly dislike when someone tells me, oh, I'm, I'm 50. Uh, it's too late for me to do this. Uh, uh, um, 40. Uh, oh, it's, I, I can't. I can't at this point in my life. And it's like, yes, you can. Yeah, you can. Yes, you can. We, we have a stand-up comic in New Orleans who I went to her 70th birthday. Wow. Jane Banks, shout out to her. She is at the bars doing, well, before COVID, at the bars doing the open mics, doing the shows with us. And it was not, it's not too late for her. She's funny and an amazing person. And if that's what she wants to do at whatever age, she should be able to do it. So um, I really love that you, you know, at every stage in your life, you, you know, went for the things. I mean, even moving to New Orleans and opening a gallery. That's so scary to me when you said that. Like we, we came, we saw this for, for Lee's sign and we just did it. We literally just did it. And I was not even 35. I think it was 34. And uh, we literally just did it. Like we flew back home. And then a week later, we flew back down to see the space and meet with the real estate guy and sign the lease. And then two weeks later, we flew in to look at a couple properties to buy. And then we sold our house. And yeah, I kind of felt like it was the time, you know, when you feel that thing that you, you just know, like, this is it. You either jump or you take the stairs down, back down the way you came, you, you know. I was at the jumping point. A lot of people feel that and then they just, they're still scared. You know, you felt it and you Mm -hmm. went with it. Yeah, but it didn't work out, unfortunately. I mean, I wouldn't change it. We have so many friends and life experiences that are irreplaceable uh, because of that time. That's the thing. It it worked out in different ways. You know, you might not have a, a gallery in New Orleans, but now you have lifelong friends. You have that experience. You can incorporate that into your art, you know, and you can always come back to New Orleans anytime you want. Yep. Anytime. There's, there's positives that, you know, that come out of that. Anytime. And in fact, so the show that I'm in at the area Dante gallery, that's up uh, for the month of September, it's this Joan of Arc exhibit where the crew of Joan of Arc put together their first ever juried show celebrating um Joan of Arc's hundred year of sainthood uh, but I was already I was painting Joan of Arc ever since the hurricane came I decided to paint I I'm named after Joan of Arc go figure and I knew that always growing up and I loved it I was so proud of it like yeah Joan of Arc a cool saint like one of the coolest women saints to be named after if not the coolest I was always pretty excited about that especially being different as I am but I never painted Joan of Arc until after the hurricane. And I was like, wait a minute, I'm thinking of things about New Orleans that I love. And I was trying to find the beautiful symbols and icons and the spirit of the city and put it into my work. And of course, the big golden Joan of Arc statue there just jumped out as a perfect symbol. So I put it in like, I don't know, six or different, more different paintings. Some of what is at this show at Ariadante, some of my Joan of Arc work. Yeah, which is amazing. And you were also recently uh, featured in The Advocate. Yeah, so exciting. Yeah, The Advocate magazine featured me in a slideshow of their on their online publication saying I'm one of their favorite lesbian artists. And they showed about six or seven of my paintings. Uh, I think they're still on the site uh, on The Advocate. Yeah, pretty exciting to get that kind of national coverage. And that came through, of course, it's always the who you know, meeting <laughs> meeting the editor at a big gay conference. I just call it the big gay conference, but it's the National Gay and Lesbian Chamber of Commerce has a, an annual conference. And I have been involved here in Baltimore in helping to found a local chapter of the LGBT Chamber of Commerce here. And then I ended up serving as president of the Maryland LGBT Chamber of Commerce for a year. And I do all the design and marketing and social media and graphics for the chamber. And so I was at this national conference and headed off to one of the evening parties and just chatting in the hallway in like five minutes, met the editor of the magazine. I was like, oh, I have a show coming up. You know, I'd love to send you some art. Well, it took an entire year of emailing and LinkedIn messaging with him before it happened, but then it finally happened. So, you know, that's great. And we'll, uh, we'll throw that up on our social media. Yeah. Great. Thank you so much for, for taking the time to chat with us. I'd like to, uh, if you don't mind sharing where people can find your art, where they can find you, social media links, all the things. Fantastic. Well, you know, like most of us my age now, I'm trying to get way more into Instagram than Facebook. (laughs) Facebook is like so outdated, right? But if you're on it, I am on there. But Instagram at Joan Cox Artist. And my regular website is joancoxart.com. 
and I have a, an additional site at shopjoancoxart.com, but of course it, it links off the main one, but where all of these prints, all my prints of lesbian couples and queer couples are orderable as, you know, little art prints on paper or canvas, like eight by 10, 20 by 20, like whatever size fits in your house or your apartment. So I used to only sell my originals, which are quite expensive. But just a few months ago, I launched this site at shopjoancoxart.com where anybody can just buy my images and enjoy them, put them in their house and, you know, check it out. And thank you for having me and, and asking me all these really intimate questions. I think it's really great to reflect on these and to listen to them and from other artists who who come before or coming along and up right next to you. You know, we're kind of next to each other. You're doing your queer comedy thing. I'm doing a queer art thing. And hopefully we can influence each other. And our audience is kind of the same audience. And influence and inspire them to be who they really are and to be their authentic selves everywhere they can every day of the week. Um, I wish I had it when I was younger and so I'm trying to be that for anybody else who is younger. I used to voraciously read the coming out stories right when I did come out or even right before they were in print back then. I couldn't go to podcasts and listen to them but there was a couple of hardback books called literally the coming out stories and I read them all. So thank you. Yeah no thank you so much and thanks for saying that. I mean that's Part of what I'm hoping is, you know, our experiences will resonate uh, with other folks, will help inspire, you know, folks out there, uh, or will just help us connect. Like right now, you know, especially with COVID and everything, I feel like connection to our community is so important. And that's, you know, why I believe so much in, in this podcast and in having amazing guests. So thank you so much. Thank you, Amanda. Thank you to our guest, Joan Cox, for sharing her world with you. You can check her out at joancoxart.com. Special thank you to Jessa Fallon and Ryan Golub for your help producing and editing the show. Social media with us. We're on Instagram, Facebook at Near and Queer to My Heart, and we're on Twitter at Queer to My Heart. Thank you all for supporting us, and we love you. Thank you. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.